Just real quick, I didn't mean to, but I uh, wanted to make sure that our online church knew of their pathway to our prayer request line, and that is our YouTube channel and our live stream. We enable the chat for anybody who joins. So if you have your prayer request at home, put it in the chat feature. If you're new to YouTube, it's right down in the right-hand corner. Uh, if you're using your phone or your computer, and just send us your prayer request, and uh, our uh, live stream engineer will make sure that uh, make sure that we get it. So we left off last week uh, in 1850, because that is uh, traditionally where the Church of Philadelphia had had its reign, at least in America. So if you follow the eras of the Christian church in the seven churches of Revelation, when Philadelphia ends, I guess we don't need a prophet to discern what era we're living in, right? Um, When I ask older Adventists, of which I am one, uh, what church we are, if we look at the seven churches, hands shoot up, automatically shoot up because Many know the answer, ooh, 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 I know, I know. And what is it? Laodicea, that's right, that's right. And I'd like to get to the point to where we get as excited about doing something about being Laodicea as we are about knowing that we're Laodicea. And so we get around to answering the question. What I wanted to do before we move on, because the next week I want to talk a little bit about a bit more of Adventist history and our place in the American experiment and our place in what we may or may not be uh, able to do living in this present time. I introduced you last week to what I was driving at, what we were going for, uh, the idea of Christian nationalism, how we can avoid Uh, being marked with that, because I truly believe that uh, that nationalism, that civil religion is what we're being warned against. This is the Babylon that we've been called uh, to be out of. And so we'll talk more about Adventist history within that next week, and then hopefully be able to move on then from Revelation 13 and both of the beasts to Revelation 14. And that is what those people look like who don't receive the mark, what those people look like who refuse to participate with the beast, refuse to receive um, his mark. So I wanted to take some time though to talk about the theology of Laodicea, to mildly apologize to um, our older, well, uh, more regular congregation, say, within the past three years, because this is a lot of theology that we've heard before. But I've also figured out that amongst our demographic, it's not too bad to go back and talk about it, even a few times in a couple of years, because I know you all have forgotten, right? So. And I think what's important about it is to remember that since we are looking Uh, at how hard this message can be, how hard it can be to to discern, how hard it can be to confess uh, where we have been and where we are right now, I think we need to be reminded of what Laodicea actually, uh, the hope that Laodicea has in her message, in Jesus' message to us in Laodicea. So 
I'd like to look just at the church. We're going back to Revelation 3. I want to look just at Laodicea and uh, look at the theology, if you don't mind. My favorite thing uh, may not be yours, especially when I'm the one who's theologizing, but uh, it certainly is my favorite thing. I shared with you before, I believe everything can be cured with good theology because the best theology is Jesus himself. Good living theology should make us at least acknowledge that Jesus is our theology. And uh, it's him that gives us this message today from Laodicea. So let's take a look. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful, and the true witness, the origin of God's creation. Jesus comes as one faithful to the covenant. The second Adam, if you will. Uh, where our creation fell short, Jesus comes as the first Adam. He comes as the one who, who follows through uh, where we have fallen short. He's the true witness of God's character. He can admonish a church who claims to be faithful, but is not. Can he not? He's the one that can give this message. He is the only one that can give this message. In many ways, it's very much like the message to Sardis. And the reason it is very much like the message to Sardis is because Sardis, if you remember, was the church of the first beast. Remember? It's the church of the era in the first beast. So this church, the Laodicea church, is the era of the church of the second beast. They almost sound identical, except for one thing. He pointed out the heresy. He pointed out the mixture of church and state, if you will, the Jezebel of Sardis. He pointed it out to them as their apostasy. This is what their problem was. Laodicea, though, has no apostasy, no heresy, no Jezebel, nothing like that, no calling out, except this. Jesus can't find one good thing to say about us, not one thing. I know your works, you're neither hot nor what? Nor cold. I wish that you were either cold or hot. What he finds when he comes to us is that he doesn't find us hot or on fire, which is bad enough, but he goes, I wish that you were cold. I wish you were freezing, but we're not. We are what? Because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Hot and cold drinks can be refreshing. Apparently, lukewarm is nauseating. And it is, if you think about it. I think of soup. Lukewarm soup? Yeah, nauseating is pretty good. That's a pretty good, uh, pretty good description. Dr. John Pauline, the longtime dean of religion of the Loma Linda, uh, at Loma Linda University, and even longer time Adventism's preeminent scholar, if you will, preeminent scholar on the book of Revelation, points out to us how Laodicea is the perfect city to pick out or the perfect ancient church to pick out to illustrate what lukewarm is all about. Six miles from Laodicea is the ancient city of Hierapolis. It's the Yellowstone Park of the ancient Middle East. 
Huge areas of geysers and boiling springs and terraces with hot mineral water pouring out over the sides. And century after century of these minerals creating these pools. The terraces are so extensive that you can see them clearly from Laodicea even on a hazy day. The water comes out extremely hot, 130 to 135 degrees. The water then enters the river, and by the time it reaches downstream to Laodicea, six miles downstream, 135 degrees has become not cold, does not remain hot. Guess what it is? It's lukewarm. No spas in Laodicea. because there's nothing therapeutic about lukewarm. By the time that the river reaches Colossia, the water becomes cold again. So if you think about it, is that Paul even mentions, so, so there is a letter written to the Colossians, right? There is a letter written to the Laodiceans, but guess what? We don't have it, because apparently Laodicea was so lukewarm about even a letter from Paul that they didn't keep it around for us for us. Jesus just might be taking a cue from the geography of Laodicea. He would prefer that we were either hot or what? Or cold. But at Laodicea, the water is lukewarm. Dr. Pauline was staying in the Turkish town of Pamelukay once in the Hotel Pam, and he said, in the Hotel Pam, there was a series of swimming pools on the hillside that was filled by a fountain at the top, uh, drawn directly from the hot springs of Hierapolis. The water came out at the top at 135 degrees and then cascaded down in a series of pools to some 12 different levels. The pool was designed to look like these terraces at Hierapolis. So the water went from level to level until it would become cooler than the preceding one. And finally, there was a waterfall that would fill the cold pool on the bottom. And it was, looked like a modern swimming pool, except it was unheated, only by air temperature. What he noticed as he sat and watched was that nobody swam or bathed in the middle pools. They all gravitated toward the hot pools and they all gravitated toward the bottom pools because there is nothing therapeutic or tasteful about lukewarm, either hot or cold. We get done running, an athlete gets done uh, exerting themselves. Do they want a lukewarm shower? Do they want a lukewarm whirlpool? No, and in some cases, they get to go right to an ice bath up to their neck. So lukewarm attracts no one. It's useless. The church is absorbed in mediocrity. The church is satisfied with being less than God's best. I'm about to spit you out is a very difficult word in Greek. It's the same word that we get for vomit. Emuo, where we get the word emesis from. So Jesus actually, Dr. Pauline reminds us of saying, when I look at you, I want to throw up. As the letters go, the church has been in steady decline, has it not? The last one apparently makes Jesus ill. 
it makes him sick. Because the church continues to answer back to his call and say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize, Jesus says, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and what? And naked. Laodicea is a defiant assurance in their own resources. They don't need anything, including Jesus himself. That is the message of a church that claims to believe and to worship Jesus Christ, except that when Jesus comes in the door, we close it on him because we don't need him. We do not need what he brings. So what lukewarm makes Laodicea is inauthentic. What she claims and what she is are two completely different things. There's a reality versus perception. Laodicea is not living in reality. She's blind to her true condition. She's the opposite of Smyrna. Smyrna was the first church that Jesus had nothing bad to say about. Laodicea is literally rich and spiritually poor. Smyrna, on the other hand, was literally poor and spiritually on fire, willing to be martyred by the empire. The city was rich too. Laodicea was leveled by an earthquake in 60 CE, but when the emperor offered help, the city declined. Nope, emperor, we are rich and have no need of your funds. This is the point with Laodicea that can't be overemphasized. There is not one good thing about this church. Laodicea is worse off than Sardis. At least in Sardis, there were a few who were walking in white. There was a remnant. Laodicea has no remnant. Everyone is in need here. In Sardis, there were a few that weren't needing. So think about that. During the time of the first beast, there was still a few. There was a remnant. We know about this. We were taught about this. How many chapters of the great controversy tells us about that remnant? The problem with Laodicea, no remnant. Which always made me curious as to how we were going to work this out. How a church who claims to be remnant is actually the Laodicean church that according to prophecy has no remnant. problem's a spiritual one. She thinks she's spiritually sound, but she is not. She does not realize her need. So what does Jesus counsel them? Actually, do you mind if I begin to make the transition to the first person? Not her, but us. What does Jesus counsel us? He says, I counsel you to buy from me so at least one thing, the very first thing that he counsels, we, we have to at least open the door to see what he's selling. We need to buy from him gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white robes to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So what he warns us first of all is the first warning is he's about to what? He's about to spit us out, okay? It's, it's time to be serious. It's time to do something about this.
What years are we going to celebrate from 1850 till now, this October 22nd? It's been a while, hasn't it? Is it time to do something about this? It's time to do something about our inauthenticity. Then he says, quit buying things you don't need. Buy from me gold refined by what? See, Laodicea doesn't need gold. They don't need riches. They don't need actual money. She thinks she's rich. But what she, and she does have gold, but what she needs is gold refined in the fire. Jesus is offering spiritual wealth. See, to look up the word gold in Revelation, it doesn't help us much because everywhere else in, in Revelation, gold is literal, actual gold. And we know that Laodicea has plenty of actual gold. They don't need actual gold. The, prop, the prostitute of Babylon is decked in it in, in chapter 17. It's a product of Babylon in, 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 in chapter 18. The material comprising the new Jerusalem is of gold in chapter 21. It's actual gold. That doesn't help us to understand the gold here that Jesus is talking about. The only place in the New Testament where gold is used figuratively is here in 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have to, what? Suffer various trials. So that the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is, reve is revealed. That's the gold Jesus is talking about, isn't it? The only other place in all the, all the New Testament scriptures that gold is used figuratively. And Peter says that what that gold is, is our faith refined by what? Refined by fire, refined by suffering. So Jesus offers faith. Faith in what? Faith in who? That's right. The other thing, we need white what? We need white robes. We talked about the robes two weeks ago, didn't we not? The white robes themselves. It's offered in Sardis, and it's offered here. It's offered in, in uh, 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 chapter four, verse four. These white robes are the very same robes that the 24 elders are wearing in the throne room, the throne room seen back in Revelation four. All of humanity who has faith can be clothed in this righteousness. It's garments of salvation. It's last day righteousness. To be dressed in these is to be right with God in the last days. To be right in the judgment of the last days. The parable of the wedding garment was a last day scene Jesus gave us in the parable. Everybody who was wearing the robe was allowed into the wedding. And by the way, when you went to a wedding of the king's son... The king sent you the robe. You have to have a lot of nerve and gall to show up without it. And remember in the parable, there was one guy who showed up without it. Jesus said, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? I don't think I'd need one. Hmm.
Laodicea is rich and has plenty of clothing, but there's one garment that they don't have because she won't let Jesus in to give it to us. We're a church, but it's outside the kingdom because he's outside the church. So gold and white clothes, one last thing. We need what? Salve to anoint our eyes. To see what? To see their problem. To see our greatest problem. To see our inauthenticity. Because we don't sense it. We don't see it. By the way, I, I, I hope that you would kind of understand that this is why I teach and preach the way I do because the only way that we can see is to remove whatever cover has been on it. And that's what I try to do. That's what I attempt to do. I need it uh, torn from my eyes. We all do. And the only way to do it is to be able to look at our history. I'm in recovery. And the only thing that allows me to continue to recover was that uh, I took a step that said I was going to make a fearless and moral inventory of my life. I was going to tear through all of the horrible things and confess them to God and to somebody else in my hearing. The only way that someone continues in recovery is to be authentic. If the church wants to begin to address these We have to confess our inauthenticity. The only way to do it is to look at our history, look at what Jesus had in mind, look at our history and examine uh, fearlessly how we are now and what we can do about it. You with me? The beast is all about appearance. The beast is about identity, appearance of power. The beast doesn't care how authentic he is. He doesn't need authenticity. Because inauthentic worshipers are authenticizing him every day. He doesn't need it. Worshipers of the beast don't need inauthenticity. Authenticity. They don't need it because no one ever holds them accountable. That's what we're trying to do for the past few weeks. Revelation 13. Identify these beasts. Identify our part in it. See if we can begin to move on. No one understands their need in Laodicea. How many are in need in Laodicea? Everyone. No remnant? Not a few? Everybody. Faith? Righteousness, clear discernment to understand our condition. Ellen White says in Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page seven, he who feels whole, he who thinks he is reasonably good and is contented with his condition does not seek to become a partaker of the grace and righteousness of Christ. Those who know they cannot possibly save themselves or of themselves do any righteous action are the ones who appreciate the help that Christ can bestow. They are the poor in spirit whom he declares to be blessed. The key to believing that Jesus is our Savior and Messiah and our righteousness is to be in need of salvation and righteousness. 
problem with Laodicea? We don't believe we need that, apparently. Feeling whole, feeling rich, feeling remnant, feeling I've got present truth and have no other need. Jesus says, I reprove and discipline those whom I what? Whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and what? Repent. Turn around. Instruct, he says, to, to, to walk in his discipline, to instruct. To discipline means to instruct, to be earnest, to be honest, to be authentic. Again, how many are lukewarm in Laodicea? Are there a, rem- a remnant? Does it remind you? Paul addressed this in Romans 3 when he, when he spoke to the Gentiles first, and then he speaks uh, to the Jewish believers, and he, then he includes himself in, in, in the Jewish believers when he says, what then, are we any better off? Not at all, for we've already charged that both all Jews and Greeks are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one that seeks God. All have turned aside together to have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness, not even one. I pointed out last week, and I get to point it out again right here. I only discipline those whom I what? There's only two churches in the seven churches that Christ offers his love, Philadelphia and Laodicea. The one thing that is going to continue to contact us and and at least have have some sort of channel of the power or the non-power that Philadelphia had to where Jesus could commend Philadelphia of, of not ever needing or mixing the civic religion or any of that, not participating in the beast at all. The one channel that Laodicea has from Philadelphia is Christ himself offering the same love that he offers to Philadelphia to us. In other words, he just spent those four verses shocking us, jolting us, having nothing good to say, and says, I love you as much as I loved what looked like was my favorite church. Laodicea is loved as Philadelphia is loved. We both come from the same standpoint. Philadelphia decided to tap into that power of that love and to eschew whatever power is being offered by the two-horned beast. Laodicea either cooperates with the two-horned beast or does it even care about not cooperating or cooperating. And the only difference between the two is that Philadelphia knows that she needs him Laodicea assumes she doesn't. His first love in Ephesus, the first love, the love that God loves us, whether we are in Ephesus, Smyrna, Sardis, Philadelphia, or Laodicea, his love. Listening, I'm stand, listen, I'm standing at the door and knock. If you hear my voice, do what? Open the door. I'll come in to you, eat with you, and you with me. 
See, if the door at Philadelphia that was, that was opened that nobody could shut is the door of salvation, then this is the opposite. Laodicea has shut the door, not shut by Jesus, but shut by us, shut by the church. He's asking to be invited in for a meal and intimacy in spite of what he already knows about us. I didn't get one amen there. Now you're only amen because I told you to. It's wonderful to be allowed to see, isn't it? He's asking to be invited in for a meal and for intimacy in spite of what he already knows about us. Laodicea is in need. She just doesn't think she's in need. If we could but trust that Jesus loves us in spite of who we are, maybe because of who we are, that love comes first. Somebody who trusts that it gladly opens the door. Amen? So we keep an eye on the reward. He will come in. He will sit at the table. We will receive a place on Jesus' throne. Ponder the most faithless, most indifferent church, us. The one that's in the most trouble is offered the greatest reward. We are offered Christ, period. I'll come in with you, I'll sit with you, and by the way, in eternity, you'll sit with me on my throne. No other church is offered that. The reason that Laodicea is in trouble is that she doesn't believe she needs Christ. She's good with the world thinking that we are a church of Christ and that we worship Christ. We're good with that. We're lukewarm. We'll let it go. Jesus said, you are the only ones who get the greatest reward, me. Me now with you, me now in the future, however long this lasts, and me now, you and me in eternity. It's just that it will go from my chair, from your chair sitting with you here on earth to you sitting with me on the throne in the kingdom. Open the door, you get me, he says. And you'll get me forever. The reward is Jesus. The solution is Jesus. Laodicea is the only church given that hope. She's the worst church of the seven, but she's the only one given the greatest reward, him. Psalm 31, 131, David puts it this way. He says, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul because like a weaned child with its mother, my soul is like the weaned child that is with me. You think you could ever be worthy of what God has to offer? Yet here in this church, us, the ones that are farthest away are the ones that are given the greatest intimacy and with an invitation simply to rejoin him. Another translation of that Psalm 131 passage is I've, I've kept my feet on the ground, I've cultivated a quiet heart, and like a baby content 
in my mother's in his mother's arms my soul is content in you if david being who he is when he wrote that who he was if he can be a baby and be content in the lap of god with his record what happened to the church To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. (laughs) The intimacy that the son has with the father is what the son is offering us. I used to think that it would be real nice to be in one of the other churches that Jesus had something good to say about, but I would like to say, if we're allowed to see in, that reward is pretty darn good. The unity that Jesus called for for his disciples back in John 17 is the unity he calls for for us. Father, I in me, you in me, I in you, and they in me who are also in you. I pray one thing that they would be one. And by the way, what do you have to do to conquer? See, that's the old Adventist question, okay? Are you in the process of conquering the way that we talk about it? Because we always say that. Are you ready? Have you prepared yourself? Are you preparing yourself to be ready? Are you preparing yourself? Are you conquering daily? Is that what you're doing? All of a sudden, we we take that intimacy and we put it off. We put it off to a point to where it says, okay, well, one day we will have conquered and we'll get to sit with Jesus. Guess what you have to do to conquer? All you have to do is invite him to the table. He sits down, and the second he sits down, you've now conquered. We get to conquer by eating. How about that? I'm all for that. How'd you conquer the two-horned beast, Greg? I had lunch with Jesus. Our conquering is because he's already conquered. The intimacy that he offers is he offers everything. He offers his righteousness, his conquering, his record, his victory. It becomes ours simply by eating with him. Let's try to remember that in a couple weeks when we eat communion with him. He conquers all evil with a towel and a basin of water and with a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine. Done. Paul put it this way when he was first speaking of his immeasurable power. The intro to our scripture reading was this. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, where? In the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also when? In the age to come. Do you believe, do you have faith in Jesus that he was raised from the dead and right now is seated at the right hand of the Father? Do you believe that? Then guess what you get 
to believe next is that we were dead through our trespasses and our sins is what he reminds us. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. We're called on to believe that. Laodicea has one job, and that is to believe what he just said. We experience our salvation. We can experience also not our, just our justification, but our sanctification. No matter where we are in our pursuit of holy things, we are already seated because of Christ with him in heavenly places. In a lot of ways, we're not even here. We are there. If he's there, we're there. Allowed to see what opened the door. We're just taking a place on a throne that is already reserved for us. And the amazing thing is that he's decided that wherever we are, that's where his throne is. At the lunch table. Conquering by lunch. I'm going to take that away from today. To he who conquers, I will give a place on my throne just as I myself has conquered. Remember we learned uh, just a, a couple months ago, Hebrews 10 says every high priest has uh, day after day offered his service, offering again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. We believe that right now Jesus is in heaven as our high priest. That's the message Laodicea is supposed to be carrying. Because if he is right now ministering to God in the heavenly places, the high priest, that's us. He's ministering for us, in us, and we're with him. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Once. And for all time. So the power of the cross. The power that Laodicea is supposed to be exhibiting and using. And making uh, the soul of our mission. The power of the cross exhibited, yes, one time in history in around 33 CE, but also is power for all time for anybody who has faith, who came before, who has faith now, and who, and who will have faith from now until the second coming. It's all because of the one who was, who is, and who is to come. So remember what Jesus offers every day, the garment that he gives. He just doesn't offer forgiveness. He offers perfection. All we need to do is believe. 
We remind ourselves of who we are. We remind ourselves of who we are and who he is. What we have done and are doing and what he has done. Who we are right now. Right now. He'll make it a beautiful thing. If we just let him sit down. He already knows about us. He already knows our problem. He knows Laodicea's problem, and he knows every one of our problems within it. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? He can. And since he does understand, he doesn't care what it's done to us. He only cares what he can do for us. We receive an insight, clear insight into our own condition. How? Well, for one, and I will talk about this next week, we need to begin to read Scripture differently, especially the Old Testament, especially the Hebrew Scriptures. We need to to take those characters off the stained glass ideal condition that we've put them in and let the word speak to us as to who they are. In case we haven't noticed, the, the Bible has no problem describing them completely. Moses gets angry. Moses commits murder when he gets angry. David? Oh, let's talk about David. The people of God are described with all their faults. Real people having real faults, having real problems, and God seeking a relationship with those people who stumble and fall. Not just make mistakes, but sin, real sin. They're real sinners. We have to begin to read scripture as the living word teaches us what it is. We need to be lifted off the page. We need to live in accountability with him through that relationship. Let anyone who has a what? Has an ear. Nobody's limited to this. Loud to see it doesn't matter. He said, all you have to do is hear what I'm saying today. If you hear, you can have it. If we hear, we can have it. Laodicea, if we have the courage to face our own problems and our issues, if we have the courage to hold each other accountable, by the way, only friends can do that for us. And we're the only ones that can do it for them, to be accountable. And remember the most important, we do not take the trip into revealing who we really are without knowing who we are in Christ, without remembering how Jesus feels about us before we begin to you know, take away that whitewash that we let other people see. If we're gonna go into some sort of deep awareness of our own condition, okay, we need to start here. This is why I started here, is to remind you of how much God loves you no matter what we've done, no matter what we discover in this walk, we begin where Ephesus failed. The first love, to remember God loves us. And then, almost as important, 
is that we're not supposed to be alone doing it. It's what the church is for. Laodicea is a church. If we're a church undergoing all the same condition, then we should be able to relate to each and everybody here. To begin to tear down walls and barriers, especially walls and barriers of self-righteousness, of fear. And to be able to just look each other in the eye and go, you know what? I'm a huge sinner. I understand you are too. What do we do about it? I've locked him out. You've locked him out. Since 1850, apparently, the church has locked him out. We all have. I was thinking of that scene in, in, in uh, Zechariah with the high priest, Joshua the high priest, standing there in, in these horrible uh, rags. You know, he's, he's been through the ringer, and Satan's standing on his right side accusing him. And, 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 and God looks at him and he says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. You think you know who he is? You think you really know who he is? All you see is, is what he's wearing? I know who he is. I know everything about him. And he's still my brand that I've plucked from the fire. And he calls out to the angels, make him look like it. And a new robe comes and the signet ring and the high priest crown. You think you know who he is? I know who he is. And he's still mine. It's sobering to look at that the last part of church history on this planet is the most troubled one. And if we're part, it's time to clearly get serious. There is no one else. It's us. We believe that we have God's final message for fallen humanity. But we have to get past this. This I have against you. You've abandoned your first what? You've abandoned your first love. The church has tried everything she could to substitute that love for something else. As she moved on in history, she looked to purify doctrine, to create orthodoxy, give in to a little idolatry, create a Christian empire, both Catholic and Protestant, and even give way then now to an American Christian empire to try to promote some sort of uniformity, but still using that same power, fear, coercion. All they did with the second one is just wrap it in the flag. That American flag that it's wrapped in is us. It's Laodicea. It's, it's, it, we, we can't separate ourselves from that. This is us. The same way that Sardis couldn't separate herself from the first one. The second beast in history, in prophecy, is entwined with us. Are we going to continue to just try to be another attempt at being right? Give humanity another run at trying to become perfect? Or are we going to do what we are called to do? Desire of Ages tells us Satan's purpose is to bring about an eternal separation between God and man. But in Christ, we became more closely united to God than if we had never fallen.
the fact that God loved us first. There's no need here. There actually is, we just need to find it. We need to find it, we need to confess it. We need to live in need. A church that needs nothing doesn't need Jesus and can no longer call itself a Christian church. People with no need will never accept forgiveness. People with no need believe they have nothing to be forgiven of. People with no need don't love other people. See, because people with no need feel that they can look down on other people and we cannot nurture and we do not rely on people we look down on. We pray for the ISAB daily. We pray for the gold that only he can give, the faith that only he can give. Please, Lord, help us to keep our robes on because we don't even know that we're poor, wretched, pitiable, blind, and naked. I'll be the first to confess that I'm all those today. And I'm gonna go to the only one that can sell me gold and ISAP and white robes. But each and every one of us, you and me, we all have to. And please, as I pointed out last week, for the love of all that is in heaven, somebody go open the door and let Jesus in. I praise God that as tough as it is, still we get to do it together. Thank you for holding on with me.